Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 210. In this episode, we're talking about trauma and mental illness with John Andrew Bryant. John Andrew Bryant is a caregiver, writer, and part-time street chaplain outside Pittsburgh. And he's the author of the book that we're excited to discuss in this episode, A Quiet Mind to Suffer, Mental Illness, Trauma, and the Death of Christ, published by Lexham Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Dr. John Anthony Dunn, and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. So, this was such a fascinating conversation. I wonder what were some of the takeaways for y'all? The thing I really enjoyed about our guest today, John Andrew Bryant, was how he just talked about walking with people slowly. Like one of the things I think we do all the time is expect things to move really quickly. And he talked about walking with people that are experiencing aspects of mental illness and aspects of trauma and the, the key of being with them and being with them in a way that's relationally and being patient and not pushing and being content with being slow and representing who Jesus is in that long kind of drawn out process that I think we don't always want to engage in. So it was a good reminder of how powerful that was in his life and how he does those things in his own ministry and how we can be applying it in ours. I really appreciated how open and vulnerable and raw John Andrew Bryant was with us. I appreciated how he talked about his experiences of having OCD um, in a clinically diagnosed way, you know, not in the kind of um, shorthand way that we just kind of flippantly use it sometimes, which he talks about, but in in that um, clinical sense and and the stories that, that he told us about his experience that traumatized him of trying to get some help for some of his OCD symptoms and, and, and how that experience traumatized him and then trying to navigate the, these two things and parsing out, you know, what's what and, you know, how, how to move on and, and, and process that he just was, was very vulnerable with us and really appreciated um, both that, that he was so open, but also the rich um, theological ways in which he uh, has reflected on, on that experience and has used that to meet people where they're at um, in some similar um, um, places. And so it's just a really uh, valuable conversation. I totally agree. Um, for me, I was thinking about the, this isn't language that he used, but the way that um, he, uh, not being neurotypical, um, was experiencing different trauma responses and how challenging it was to sort of untangle that because of the different ways that he operates in the world. Um, and so I just appreciate his candor and help for us in understanding how God has created him to be and and him narrating the the beauty of that. So I think it's a great conversation. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Also, if you appreciate what we do here at the Two Cities, please consider joining our Patreon community to support our work and receive bonus content. Look for us on Patreon, follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with John Andrew Bryant.
John, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's, I'm honored to be here. So John, you're joining us in the middle of our series on trauma, which is one of the, well, it's a word in the title of your book, but you have a particular lens on trauma. And so could you tell us a little bit about your story and especially about your recent book? Yeah, so um, I think, so the book's A Quiet Mind to Suffer With. And um, although I have a, a, I mean, I got an MDiv from a seminary. Uh, I try to, I try to be up on theological things. It's, it's a memoir about what happened to me um, um, and how it changed uh, my relationship to Christ and especially a deeper understanding of where his gospel meets us in sort of the the abyss, as it were. Um, I, a lot of people read it as a book about um, mental illness, but it's joined. It, it's a book about a, a breakdown that I had, and the breakdown itself, although caused by the OCD, was itself traumatic. So I ended up sort of having overlapping a situation where I was recovering from OCD while also trying to process a traumatic experience. And uh, and people who make it through the introduction to the first chapter will 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 find out what that experience was like. Uh, my OCD symptoms presented in such a distressing fashion that I was uh, admitted myself to a psych ward, and it, that itself was um, the experience there was traumatic for me in a way that didn't I, I didn't come out the same as when I went in. And uh, and so the book is about whether or not Christ is the friend of people whose minds aren't their friends and and whose bodies, uh, you know, your traumatized body is becomes a stranger to you. So, yeah, I, I will ramble on and on, but that's, that's the gist of the book. Um, so uh, mental illness and trauma by someone who is a, a sufferer of those things and is trying to find language for where Jesus fits in, but not so much as a, I don't have a PhD, anything or anything like that. That's really helpful, John. I, I wonder if um, just because of so much misinformation about OCD in particular, if you could help us to understand a little bit more about the diagnosis, you certainly don't have to reveal anything about your um, personal experience of that that you don't want to or that's not in the book. Um, but it might be helpful for us to to really differentiate some of the sort of popular uses of the phrase, you know, I have OCD with the actual clinical diagnosis. Yeah, I, I try to not um, get upset when people say stuff like, oh, I'm just being OCD when what they really are is just being attentive or being clean. Um, I tell people I wouldn't wish OCD on my worst enemy. It's it's a it's a it's a nightmarish hellscape of of a scenario, especially if it's not being managed well or if you don't know what's happening to you. So uh, the way I you know for obsessive OCD is made out of two things: it's obsessions and compulsions, and and there's different ways people talk about it. But basically, what I say is the obsessions are are these sort of distressing thoughts and feelings that uh, they're like a car alarm going off. Um, you can't stop it. Um, it's distracting. It's painful. And um, and really, it's not, it has nothing to do with you. It's just your brain just misfiring. It's your brain telling you something's wrong when nothing's wrong. In order to make that alarm go off, people develop compulsions to sort of satisfy. I call it the siren to sort of make the siren stop. So you you develop checking habits, different different compulsions. What they really are is a kind of worship of a deity that you're not even acknowledging, which is that you you want your brain to not be upset. 
And so you develop compulsions to keep your brain uh, not upset. And then uh, the problem is that you're, it's never enough. Um, so you spiral those, the obsessions and compulsions spiral until, uh, until it can become quite distressing. And uh, a lot of people, uh, my type of subset of OCD is what they call pure O so that the compulsions are not clearly manifesting in your everyday life. I'm not a clean person. I don't, obviously check things but my compulsion was hyper rumination so i was a constant haunted house of of cognition by which i was trying to deal with um uh, that siren that alarm going off and and so the fact that they was all up here made it very it didn't get for me didn't get diagnosed until my late 20s early 30s i'm 34 now so it's it's been half a decade understanding that and uh, and so I would say yeah, OCD, uh, my subset being um, like pure O. Um, and uh, the problem is that pure O is not easily diagnosed and the suicide rates higher because people just think that they're awful. And then so uh, it, that became for me a, a reason to share the story because um, with pure O or just OCD in general comes a lot of intrusive thoughts, um, nightmarish images that are not voluntary um that you are experiencing but that if you're if you have ocd you start thinking that you're awful that you are those thoughts and then your your self-concept just becomes zero you know you don't you feel like garbage and so that was <laughs> i'm hoping just a brief sort of that that in itself can be traumatic just because you don't know what your brain's doing and it, if it can turn on you like that that can be a real threat to yourself um, so sometimes I wonder if the OCD itself had a, a traumatizing effect on me um, outside of the psych ward visit. So you're exhibiting kind of these compul or these obsessions, and you've recognized that you got diagnosed. What what drove you to the diagnosis and and heading in that kind of direction of you know going to the psych ward? That kind of if you're comfortable sharing that. At what point did you say something had to change? Yeah. Well. Um, I think there's so OCD runs in my family. Um, so I, I say that it's in the it's in the sap of the family tree, so to speak, is is OCD. So it's not something that had been addressed. Um, we just thought we were quirky. We thought we had quirks. Um, but for me, um, the intrusive thoughts, which, again, the intrusive thought comes in, everyone has them. They're just part of your brain sort of processing experience. The, the thought comes in, your brain gets upset, says something's wrong. You try to fix it by making the thoughts go away. And before you know it, you can't leave your house. You can't function because um, everything might trigger an intrusive thought. So you don't want to go outside. You don't want to go to places where where you're with people. You don't want to you, you start being afraid of yourself. And that's very common with, I speak of you, like that's just what happens to people who have the experience of, of OCD often. Um, for me, I had gotten to the point where I had stopped eating, really. Uh, I couldn't really leave the house. Um, I had to have people take me places, um, drive me places. And, and, that, and it happened within a short cycle. So with I'd always been anxious person, always overthought, but all of a sudden, in a span of two and a half weeks, I dropped, you know, 20 pounds and, and I just couldn't function. And so you, when you enter that space, you know, there, there becomes a sense of, I don't know what's happening. I'm afraid. 
And I need someone who has some sense of what this is to talk to me and tell me what this is. The problem I found, and this is where the trauma gets introduced, is the intrusive thoughts are often OCD people with intrusive thoughts often check themselves into psych wars because they're worried about what those thoughts mean. They then get misdiagnosed as potentially psychotic or dangerous. And so they end up staying in psych wards and getting traumatized. So you find especially a lot of mothers that are giving birth, um, having a combination of OCD and postpartum depression, um, becoming terrified, going to psych wards, getting misdiagnosed as this or that, when really it's it's a lot of it is just a symptom of uh, an anxiety disorder. And yeah, now when they get distressing enough, you, you kind of want someone to tell you what's going on. You know, could you tell us about the recovery process from that traumatic experience of being in the psych ward and what, you know, to go from one institution that was, you know, meant to help you um, recuperate uh, and then potentially to to another to another medical provider or someone to kind of help you process that and and um, and, and work with that, work through that? Yeah, well, it was really cool. Um, the. The the actual psychiatrist, the psychiatrist at the psych ward was great because he recognized pretty immediately that um, what was happening. And then there was a nurse there who who had a husband with OCD, I think had a husband. She said something she really loved. So I was thinking either um, a husband or a child with OCD. And um, those experiences were actually very healing. The psychiatrist was was not a Christian, but when he pronounced this word of amnesty over me, he's like, I, John, you just have OCD. You got here because you your compulsions got really bad and um, you were a little too honest about your intrusive thoughts with the nurses. So you freaked them out and, and we're going to get you right out of here because it's just OCD. I just felt like someone had pardoned me from, you know, exile. Um, the nurse who walked with me was uh, was just for me was a sign of Christ. Just mm. uh, it was a sacrament, really. It felt like it was she. She walked with me, gave me regard, asked me about my life before this. Which, when you've had a traumatic experiences, you don't feel like you feel like you fell into a hole, and you don't know like you can't really put before and after back together. So she, even while I was in there, she was trying to give me a before and after again. What was your like life like before this? And what are you hoping? What do you have to look forward to? When's your wife coming to see you? When so and she was didn't those questions were not expert questions. They were very basic questions, but they implied that I had a name, that I had a life before mm-hmm. this, I would have a life after this. And then I, I entered into therapy with somebody who um understood the disorder, understood what it was, understood that it's it's only frightening if you don't know what it is. It's pretty common. It's pretty much, it's pretty standard for OCD to have that happen. Um, fell into a therapy style called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is really great. I found for people with OCD because it lets you accept the alarm and point yourself in a direction that you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to work out a way that where faith and the therapy were uh, were not um, pushing at each other. I said he wasn't a Christian, but I told him like Jesus meant everything to me, and we had to find figure out a way to work with that. And uh, and he did, and um, fell into some rhythms. I took half a decade figuring out how to live without compulsions, or at least with the possibility of living without them. And um, he just slowly, gradually, gradually 
learn the difference between the siren and reality and you learn how to walk out of something um that's very powerful but isn't true which is your your brain lying to you and yeah so yeah very gradual <laughs> super painful i think the negative thing about the book was how gradual i make recovery sound cuz you know, I would day to day, I didn't feel better, but year to year, I, I felt a little better. And five years out, I feel a lot better than five years ago. So I, it's thinking of it like that is, I think, can be discouraging for folks who just want to feel better. That's really helpful, John. I wonder if you could um, help us zoom out a little bit, because some of the themes that I'm hearing in your work are some that we've heard already in our series, thinking about the relationship between um, our bodies in the world. Um, and, um, this is specific to, to our conversation with you, but I I do think it has some overlap. Um, thinking about the relationship between trauma and mental illness, I think it's really helpful as we're thinking about processing trauma. So could you help us to understand what it's looked like for you to hold these two things as parallel and yet distinctive kind of experiences in your life that you are a person who has a mental health concern that's ongoing, but then you also have this trauma that you're processing. And one of those will probably be with you for your whole life, but by the grace of God, you may not always be, you may not always experience the trauma in the same way that you are presently. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. Um, So what I found um is that at least well f- when you have multiple things happening um language just seems to not be there to describe it it just feels like chaos and i'm i'm a chaplain with an organization called church army usa and we do um the ministry of presence relational sort of chaplain just visiting folks a lot and um and their lives are a combination of a lot of times uh, addiction, housing insecurity, uh, trauma, mental illness, all sorts of things overlapping. But if you were to talk to them, a lot of them would just say that it's just their life's chaos. And so um, when life's chaotic, you don't have language for chaos. And the whole point is language is gone. The language that would create meaning is it's not available. And so it took me five years. It took me a long time to say, OK, in my experience, the OCD sits on top of and confuses or fogs over these other things that I really need to get to. And so one was the trauma, which had its own language and sort of trajectory and needed to be dealt with on its own terms. But the OCD was sitting on top of it, so I couldn't get to it. And then you also just have the fact that like, to have OCD in a traumatic experience means that you've suffered and that in a sense, there's a loss of meaning that comes with having suffered those things. There's a loss of honor because they're both embarrassing in a sense, maybe in the sense of you've lost, you lose honor in the world by having them be debilitating and not being able to do the things that you want to do. So, and then they're also like deeply frightening because you uh, life becomes, uh, they're scary. You don't know what, they, they feel like as if OCD and trauma when combined or even just by themselves feel like they can just swallow you, like they can just devour you. And so then you have to deal with the fact that 
that you're just a person who's who's lost honor and security and and meaning out of because or at least those things have been threatened and and then you have to figure out who Jesus is going to be with all these things. Um, but in my experience, uh, trauma was the hardest to get to, and also was affecting everything else in a in a way. So I kind of felt like, and like I had to dig beneath layers. Okay, here's OCD. Here's how OCD sounds like. Here's the language it speaks. Here's how I understand it. Now, what's this other thing? Oh, okay, that's actually the fact that like something traumatic happened and and my body's not the same or I'm very reactive now. Okay, that's different than OCD, but my OCD also gets freaked out by it. So they are related. And um, I found a, this, it became a, a long journey of learning to listen to aspects of myself and really to ask the lord by his mercy to sort these things out for me what what is ocd what is uh what is trauma <laughs> what is happening to me and, and and who am i in the midst of these things that create chaos where do i find locate myself in the midst of that storm um and i still like obviously haven't figured it all out i wrote a book to try to figure out <laughs> to begin the process. I, yeah. So I, I think it's interesting that, I mean, thanks for sharing that. That's hard stuff to share. And I, I think you even brought up a real interesting thing with the whole society and the whole sense of honor by dealing with stuff or like this whole stoic left brain, like, if I can handle all these things, then I'm okay. I fit in society. And uh, I'd love to hear you just talk about the process of like, of recognizing that's what you're going through yeah. uh, is opposite from hiding in shame Yeah, and, and speaking out, especially right in the book. And even as you're thinking about moving forward, like you haven't figured it all out. So it just <laughs> a written process, which is neat to hear. So. Yeah. I, I lost a career to not just to the OCD, which I could have I could have swept under the rug and played normal. Because the one thing about my OCD is you can, at least I can, I can play normal with enough of the stuff to pass as normal. <laughs> and uh but um I I understand that writing a book like the one I wrote or even just talking, like you don't well, now you're like the guys who admitted to being crazy at one point or, you know, or, or who said that these things happen in it. And, and, um, but we found that people that we loved, um, in our community, um, once they found out kind of through the grapevine that I had had a traumatic experience and, and was dealing with OCD and had been to the psych ward, it was like the sigh of relief that, Oh, like, oh, you've been to the psych ward. I was like, oh, yeah. And they were like, and you came back. I was like, yeah. And then, it, and then, and then I, at some point, I went to visit somebody in my ministry who was at the, on the, you know, a year later after leaving the psych ward, I was, um, had taken a job in ministry that could fit with my mind. And it was, it was, you know, the work I do now, chaplaincy mostly and being with folks. And, um, and I remember going to see the place, going back to the place where, you know, I was on the other side of it and uh, and thinking like this will always be a part of how I proclaim the gospel because the Lord met me here, revealed 
revealed himself to me as, you know, the only thing I had. And because that revelation or that proclamation, it's like part of how I talk. Like when I think of Jesus, that that's my, the way I talk as I talk about the Jesus who met me there and, and, you know, his death and resurrection and return were no longer abstractions. I was like the Christ who died, met me through the proclamation of his word in a psych ward. I, I through the sacrament of presence given to me by the nurse through the words of scripture in the ESV. You know, when my wife came, she read Psalms to me. I had powerful encounters just with thinking on Christ himself. You know, you, you're like, well, okay, well, Jesus is here. So in some sense, I can't be ashamed of a place that Jesus was willing to be with me. And when I started being able to talk about it, I kind of forgot or didn't care as much what happened to my career. It was just, it just seemed like the stakes were different at some point because people were, it's like, it was a sign. They wanted needed to hear that someone came out of there and still had a life. And, and, uh, and because Jesus, because they knew Jesus loved them and were able to hear his promises in a place like that. So, but yeah, I mean, you don't get treated the same after something like that. And if you're open about it with, I was in the ordination process. If you're open about it, you know, you can just toss that ordination process way on down the line. Like, you know, like, uh, I gave, I lost, I had to lose what I thought my life was going to be like in order to be honest about where the Lord met me. And so far the trade's been more than worth it. It's been joyful. I've, I haven't regretted it. Sometimes I'm like, uh, how honest am I going to be? Hmm. But you know, now I'm just sort of kind of breezy with it. I'm just, yeah, I'll talk about it. Like, what do you want to know? <laughs> that took some time for sure. Thanks for sharing that. That's uh, that's really powerful. And, you know, even uh, as you, as you say, you know, the, the Christ who died and was resurrected, like met you there. And there's even these, you know, death and new birth or death and resurrection motifs and how you describe your experience of like, like you went to the ward and you came back, you know, there's the, and like <laughs> on the other side, you know, as you use that kind of language. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, if you could tell us a bit more about those kind of theological reflections, because the shape of your, your book is almost creedal, uh, in, in a way, right? Like, you know, one section is like, you know, Christ died and then Christ resurrected, you know, so could you tell us a little bit about, those theological reflections that you provide in your, in your book and, and a bit about how, how you structured, structured it as well. Yeah. I, you know, my, the thing I, we do, um, uh, morning prayer every day, um, friends and family meet on zoom, um, which I promise I actually know how to use at some point. Um, and, uh, the morning prayer itself does not have this line, but it's somewhere else in the prayer book. So I tacked it on, which is we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And at some point, that is such a, a relief that that those events are what will make things right or have made things right. And um, And then I think finding out that those realities, those events, that person is to be communed with through by the proclamation of his gospel through his spirit and his fellowship, you know, this, we can partake of those things. Um, and we can, we can know this person and, and it's a person who died and rose and will come again. And, and, um, 
man, I just kept thinking, how how do I I want to get as close as I can to to this person? And and I started kind of holding those three died, risen, coming in together when you have stories like um doubting Thomas, so a risen Lord pro- holding out the crucified hands. So still crucified, but now risen, one day returning as a way of saying, okay, we get like all three of those in this one person. And and in some sense, the resurrection and the return as the fulfillment of the crucifixion and not as just a moving on from it. I don't know why, but man, it's meant the world to me. I was at feeling alienated from a lot of the way we talked about, people talked about their faith, a lot of those good feelings I was supposed to be getting. And I was like, ah. but when I heard that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. I just felt like, oh, I can trust that. And if I can trust that, maybe I can get out of bed. And so it was about hearing like this, you know, crucified and risen Lord becoming available to us through his promises and in this gospel. And, um, and I think the work I do now, I emphasize the eventness, the objectivity of the faith, like it's faith in this person and what he did and, and what happened. Because otherwise I would just be staring into myself wondering when I was going to feel special or happy as a Christian. And I just, I just wasn't going to happen. My brain was too upset. All I could do was just learn to walk through ugly symptoms with crucified risen savior i was like I, I trust this guy i trust him he met me here he he's available in these ways and and I, my hope is that i can have a day like an ordinary day was what i wanted and i needed those things to be true. so i kind of became my focus then um that's kind of kind of what it was like you've said it a few times that you're you've been able to be with people in a different way and we all understand that one of the things that helps people heal from trauma is presence and mm-hmm. safety. And it sounds like God has taken you through this even right now with the way you're uh, with the current position that you're in and you're able to be with people in a different type of quality type of presence and bringing Jesus with you mm-hmm. in that, in a different way than you had before it would be my assumption. Like, could you share a little bit about that? Yeah. I, you know, my ministry style changed considerably after the experience. Um, and I, the people I work with are have been traumatized much worse than I have been. And I have a respect for that, learning to have a respect for that. That, um, But it made me a lot quieter and to say, okay, because I think a lot of people, I think, the church, they don't mean anything negative by it. But when we come out very energetically with people and full of optimism to a traumatized person, that's perceived, felt as violence, and it's felt as being pushed, and and they've had they've been pushed enough. Yeah. And so I felt like that tree from Lord of the Rings that just sat there while the world was burning and you know couldn't decide. I, I'm just a lot quieter. I move like a parody of slowness i'm just so slow with the way i approach people i'm slow with how i approach myself to say oh hey sounds like you're having a reaction here why don't we sit down why don't we 
do what we know to get us back to a place where we know the Lord is with us, or at least the attempt to know the Lord is with us. And I, I work with people that trauma is all they know. They just don't have words for it. Um, their resiliency, I admire, but also their distress is like a furnace. Um, the urgency of felt needs being sort of affected by the traumatic, the trauma they've experienced and, and knowing that I am not going to sit there and sort out, okay, this is their mental illness. This is their trauma. This is the fact that they're kind of just a jerk and all those together mixed with original sin makes this person, all you know, is just like, man, this person's a lot and they're freaking out. And all I can do is be quiet and sit with them. And you, I've learned these different things to give. I call it regard company and places to be or regard company and tables. Regard is the fiercest gift we can give people who are hurting because when they're hurting, they swing at you verbally in their tone, in their approach. And you give regard because it's possible to give it <laughs> because you have you've heard the gospel today and you heard of your own forgiveness and um and then you you give it and you don't swing back with your words or with your tone and you don't fix and you don't run away you don't retaliate even in in terms of you don't try to make whatever is happening to them right and you just give regard regard becomes company when you give regard, you you can learn to keep people company. Again, not to fix, but because people need company as they make their way out of the things that have ruined them. They can't. The company is just it's what you give. And then people slowly at their speed make their ways to not always communities of faith in my ministry, but certainly places where they feel safe or safer. So we do a lot of craft tables, a lot of things where it's low key but they're with other folks and they feel safe or at least safe enough to try and um i would have never thought to do those things before that i would have thought we needed more bible studies we would do bible studies or i thought we would need this or that sort of programmatic thing to make this ministry a success and i was like it's like we just got to throw that out the window like we got to go really slow and we got to give really ordinary things that we take for granted. Cause if you're like, if you have resources, if you have like family, you're used to like calling your mom and just talking about your day. But like <laughs> people that don't have it, you sitting there on a stoop listening is just like, it's a gift and it's a gift we overlook and it means the world. It's a sign of Christ's forgiveness that he's willing to look at us and, yeah, to to your question, yeah, it. Man, I'm and even I look back on the ministry we do, and I'm thinking, man, we went too fast. We still went too fast. We still, we should have gone slower. And I only look back and think we should have gone slower. More time, more time, more time that wasn't didn't need to be anything other than time was the gift, and I wished I would have understood that sooner. I think what you're narrating in terms of what we bring to people resonates a lot with me. Um, I, and even just your experience of God and thinking about um, my experiences, both of trauma and uh, chronic health concerns. And, um, and I, I've talked to uh, my colleague, Todd Billings, who's really open about his journey with cancer 
And um, we just kind of dialogue about some of the unhelpful messages we receive. Um, and so, and I, I, I feel like some of what you're hearing overlaps with some of those conversations that we have. Um, I wonder if you could narrate for us a, a little bit more because um, I don't want to ask you a controversial question and get you into trouble, but there's a thread that I'm hearing in your stuff that I, I just want to be direct with, which is John in today in your developed understanding of, of all of these things, like, what is the good news of God? So I think I'm working on a second book and it's maybe more overtly about trauma. Cause I also had um, coexistent with um, the, the psych ward experience I had um I'd be murky with it, but between the years of 18 and 34, I had an abusive spiritual mentor and, um, and that just messes everything up with how you relate to Jesus yourself. And so both of those were different trauma wise, but the thread between all of them is the person who's been traumatized feels I, someone had a great definition that it's the threat of annihilation has been imprinted on the body and in some sense, the soul. And so people knowing that G, the gift of Christ means one, that our sin is cleansed two that all lies will be cast out. These lies that tears um, that wounds will be mended, that troubles will be ended um, by this, the Sabbath rest of Christ himself but also that the self will be upheld and not fall apart. And I think that is the, what a traumatized, what I needed, the inflection of what is this gift that God gives is, is um, you, you, you're changed, but in such a way that you're actually held together and the things that tear have torn you asunder, including your sin, but also including these things that have happened and the devil's condemnation over it that he puts us back together and and uh i catch glimpses of that in the ministry where i i you know i work with people that are certainly traumatized but maybe the presenting symptom is severe schizophrenia and you have these moments you can see that there's sort of chaos to themselves but then there's moments where a, a joy breaks through and and you can see that they not only do they understand that Jesus loves them and died for them, but that they are held, they are going to be held together, that Jesus puts things back together. He restores. And that was an inflection of who God was that I hadn't thought of. I'm still wrapping my head around that Jesus gives himself on the cross to us. And that gift has the power to not only draw people who've been crushed to his table, but to transfigure them and to uphold them. Um, and that's a promise that I think, like we talk about already, not yet. I think even the, the promise and the proclamation of that, I've seen already start putting people back together. The promise itself has a power to, to do that. And then when you are present with people, you become a sign of that promise as well. And so you continue that, you know, I talk about singing a lot that 
the a song itself, even if you don't see the thing that's singing about the song itself, has a power to pull and to to mend. Um, the picture for me has always been when I think of God, it changed to I just see a lot of I had a lot of images in my mind of crucified hands, and that's that was all I needed. But the, the promise there was, this is God revealing Himself to me, and when God reveals who He is, He he reveals who I am and also puts me back together so that I am who I am. And knowing that you're not just a worthless piece of crap, that you're a guest at his table, you know, you just need to hear, I cannot get enough of hearing that. Thank you, John. So how can, how can we just one recognize like somebody's going through similar things that you've gone through? Cause like, it's easy to hide. Like we talked about that and, and it might even be a point where you don't even know how to articulate what you're going through. But I'm thinking pastorally, I'm thinking as we minister to people, as we're just with your brothers and sisters, how do we recognize and speak into the fact that somebody might need that help or that acknowledgement or that regard in a way that says you need to get help. You need some, something else. And then how are we with, how it's the best way we can be with them in that process. Mm-hmm. That's the the hard thing about traumas. You know, I'm, one of my favorite books, sort of, for me, the the book on traumas, that body keeps the score book, which for me was just like having someone tell me my life after what had happened, and um, talks about. I mean, it's just it's really hard to talk about what it's like to feel like the threat of annihilation, to feel tenuous. I I, I keep talking. That's a language I use. Like. To feel tenuous, to feel like you are a light, like the light that is you could just be snuffed out at any moment. And then that, um, in a certain sense, it's, I don't, I don't even know how to, you know, how do you, uh, you spot trauma versus some other thing, or how do you know it as versus this or that? But for me, there's a word cloud around trauma. When people talk about chaos, when people, talk about um feeling as if you know they're about to be destroyed feeling as if they're about to crumble words words around chaos crumbling breakdown you sort of develop a kind of word cloud that where those things sort of make sense that you're this is someone talking about a traumatic experience or and for me i just had to so i started creating like diagrams for like what I was feeling and and learning the difference between OCD speaking and trauma, trauma way harder than anything else. Cause I was like talking to my wife and I was like, how do I tell you that I feel in my deepest self compromised or like that I have been, I feel shattered. I feel ruined, but in such a way that I also don't even feel like I exist enough to say those words. I just, and you start, so for me, it's this hunt for language, but I I usually, there's words where you can kind of hear, okay, this isn't just, it may also be this, but this is a person f- from whom everything, like everything just fell out from under them in multiple ways. And um, so, yeah, I, it's, uh, it's rough because I'm, listen, I like, I'm not a counselor. 
like, and I'm not a, I'm barely a theologian, I'm barely a writer, right? You know, but you, if you listen well enough, you hear things. And then a lot of times, if there's trust, especially if they bring it up, there's always, and this is where it's a weird spectrum. Most people have had something that was a profound rupture between before and after. And then a lot of people can still feel that if they approach that fragmented line, they're going to fall into an abyss and not exist anymore. And that's what that's what it's like to talk about trauma. A lot of times you're like, you feel like you're going to fall back in and never get out. And so people don't want to face it for good reason. They need help facing it. There's therapies where you don't have to talk it out so much. You can kind of learn how to get your body and brain communicating again. But I think pastorally, what I found is people people will talk about trauma when they want to. Um, and I never, I never push. I'm not saying you're saying push, but kind of people are like a book to me. And when you listen long enough, you, you hear themes and, um, and you, it's hard. It's always a risk to say to somebody, Hey, like, are you okay? It seemed like something happened and you're not the same and you haven't been for a long time. Like, how do you have that conversation? And, um, but I think also people, something about when regard is given feels like the opposite of falling apart, even when you're talking about something hard. And so I think pastorally people need, in our listening, in our regard, need to feel some sign that Christ is, whatever that abyss is, Christ is also there. And even if I can just be a little sign of it by listening to whatever you have to say, you know, that's, um, that still matters. Um, I'll, I'll give a quick example of just how I experienced it. So I, I like to write, I'm a writer, I guess. Um, for me, traumatic experiences are like rooms and, um, I'm approaching now revising a chapter where I go into a traumatic experience and it's a room I go into and I leave that room feeling confused and bad. I feel confused and bad. But the hard thing is that in that room is the person it happened to, which is also me. (laughs) So the thing that was very healing, I kind of wrote, and I think people with trauma, there's lots of ways to find healing through art. Um, writing, you can access a part of yourself that can talk about it without staring right at it full in the face. So I, I imagined me going into that room, hitting pause on what was happening, uh, which was an abusive conversation between me and a bad mentor, and talking to the person it happened to. And one of the things when that imaginative dialogue, which is me talking to myself, but a part of myself that I don't want to talk to because it's hard, all that stuff, was I found myself saying, the John in the room saying, are you here to get me out? And then the John I am saying, I'm here to visit. I can't get you out. This happened to you. I can't stop it from happening. I could be sorry that it happened, but I'm crying. But in that writing that thing, I, I also brought a little light in with me. The light was Christ and how I understood and be present. And then the John in the room said, will you bring, will you come visit me again? And I said, yes. Will you bring that light with you? Yes. And then also in a funny way, 
in that imaginative encounter, I start taking boxes out of this room. The John in the room says, why are you taking boxes out? And I said, we have to get the rest of our life out of here. The rest of our life is trapped in this room. We have to, we have to move. We have, the rest of my life is also happening. I can't save you. This happened to you. And I'm sorry. This is your moment to experience. It's horrible. I'll come see you. But I got get, I got to get the rest of my life here because when you've had a traumatic experience, it's like you don't get to have a sequence of moments anymore. You don't get to have this moment, this moment, and this moment. The moment, the traumatizing moment becomes a trap door and everything after just falls into it. And that's the experience I had, which every this room got to talk, got to be the rest of my life, unless I went in with ways that therapists encouraged that were okay, that I understood I was ultimately safe. I wasn't re-triggering myself in a way that was compromising. But to say, okay, I need to this needs to be strung out again on um a line. That was a bad moment, but there's a moment after and a moment after. This moment doesn't get to hang under all moments like a trapdoor and swallow everything. And that for me was um, how I addressed myself pastorally in a traumatic experience. And um, so that I could move through it because I was finding that I was very reactive um, in ways that that clearly were related to what had happened to me, but that I needed time to address to say, okay, this person who's being mean to you is not your former boss. Let's unblur what happened from what's happening, string them out on. So everything goes back to a little bit like a before and after, but um, you can even tell I'm struggling how to talk about it, but um, that's a, that's not the, what I just described is not in this book. It's in, it's in the next one, but I think some of it still applies to like, you can't let that room take up your whole life, but you also, you also need to go visit, see the person it happened to and let them know that you're not just going to forget about them. That's like a slow relational plotting, right? This like mm-hmm. process plotting along, even with yourself and God and, and even what you're saying earlier being with people in a slow way that is going to be relational that when they're ready, that's when you talk what's when we want to talk about it type thing. Yeah. Which is opposite from Christianity, pop culture sometimes where we're like, be healed, be healed, be healed. Oh yeah. What's wrong with you? You're not healed yet or just change your positive, negative thoughts to positive. Yeah. You know, that's what's so great about the body keeps the score. And he, I think ultimately it's, it's a book that's complementary to faith. Yeah. He talks a lot about coping strategies having to do with prayer and he works with Christians. So he's, but he talks about like, when we talk about, you need to get over that. You don't understand that the, the over that is your body now. Like you're, if a storm blows through and it leaves your house destroyed, then the storm is two things. It's it's a storm that left. It's gone. It's in the past. It's also the house that's ruined now. And I think Christians don't understand. I didn't understand that after a traumatic experience, your body is your body and mind are not the same. They are not talking to it. It's not talking to itself the same. It, the houses have gone. The lights have gone off in different part of the houses to extend the metaphor. Um, you are no longer left with the same body and mind. And so the approach has to be gentleness because we, we actually don't even know the full extent of the damage. 
So the only approach that doesn't cause more damage is gentleness. But I think we want people to get better. So we start pushing them. Go out, go out, you know, get right back on the horse. Start trying again. Well, no, no. And with the people I work with, the, the, the idea of getting them back on the horse is getting them back into churches where they were traumatized. Worst thing you can do is to tell, make someone feel like they have to go to church with you. Well, you need, you need to try again. You know, this church is really great. You know, and they start saying things like that. Your church may be great, but pushing a traumatized person to go to church with you, even if it just feels like you're being an encouraging, be really careful. That could be, that is felt often as violence, like, and, and even though you don't mean it. So I have, I mean, glacial pace. I mean, glacial move at their speed, give regard, um, never. Um, if I could tell people, because a lot of the people I work with, they're so, they seem really tough and they seem really whatever, but the worst thing you can do is be pushy. The worst thing you can do is to um, to come in with force, um, even if it's encouragement, you know. And so I'm not telling people don't care. I'm just saying just, it's it's not easy getting your mind and body to reacclimate to reality after something happened. You know, it's not easy at all. Give people decades, not not months. <laughs> give people give people time. Yeah, yeah. We can unintentionally compound shame on them, right? And just basically, they think, "Why? Why can't I be in church again? I'm not enough. I, I can't. Why can't I get there? This is what a Christian should do." And it is violence, especially the continue pushing. And that's hard. It's hard to hear and it's hard to think about, especially as a pastor that wants people to be in church. But yeah. recognizing the community and people around us, sometimes not being in church is the best thing for them, but us meeting them where they're at and walking through that relational slow plod that isn't going to make a mega church out of a little church in Richardson, yeah. Texas. You know, so. I tell people, even we've lost our song to people. And one of the great emphasis in my ministry is, is, is gentle. It's not only gentleness, but beauty. Like, like there's something beautiful about people who've been crushed returning to his table. Like the Lord wants people back. He wants them back at his table, but we have to sing to them the right song and not shout, sing, and when you're listening to somebody and just being there, you are singing. You're telling them about Jesus. You're telling them about his gentleness. You're telling them about his willingness to turn his face towards them. You're telling them that Jesus is not, he will not, uh, 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 a bruised reed, he will not break. You know, he's he's not, he's tender with people who've been hurt. And when you're giving regard, it can often feel like just, can feel like a waste of time but I, a friend of mine said i just, the thing that mattered most was that you you never pushed me and and that you listened and i'm and i'm, I'm a very impatient person at, at, and my in my insights feel impatient so it was grueling to just be like i'm just gonna listen but i think we're i it's it's not just it's serving, but I think we're singing, we're singing to people. And as much as we disagree with this world about its approach to things, this is a traumatized world. This is a world that's been hurting. And 
It's a world that is starved for some sign of the beauty of Jesus. And if we're so opposed to the what, what the world values, we'll forget that it's hurting. And then when people are hurting, they need a sign of the Sabbath rest offered in Christ. And I think we can give that. I, I think it's doable. It's ordinary hospitality. It's, you know, I, I, I think to myself, what do I want people to say about me, whatever, about who I was in ministry? And I want them to say, when, when I was upset, he was gentle. When I was sad, he grieved. And when I was happy, he was glad. And I think, man, we can do that. We can be glad. We can grieve with people, even, even grieve their sin gently, you know, and, uh, and we can be gentle. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the means of grace. We need to hear the gospel all the time. But that's part of our inheritance is we, we are people who can be gentle, grieve and be glad with the world that's hurting. And, uh, man, we got to fight for that inheritance again. We got, that's a beautiful song to sing to a hurting world. I think we can sing it. No, that's so beautiful. And everything that, everything that you've shared is, has been quite beautiful. I mean, you said a moment ago that you're not much of a theologian or much of a writer, but this is not true. This has been very rich and uh, really powerful. And just thank you for sharing that. I mean, I love, you You know, even your writing, like in the book, it's quite poetic at times. Like I love the first line where, you know, you're like, my my words are gems and bastards, um, but, but I can't say that they're even hardly mine or something like that. And it's like, whoa, am I reading poetry? This is amazing. Um, you know, like it's just a delight. Like I, I, so I just want to commend, um, commend you in your, in your work and, and, and yeah, just say that, no, you, you are, you're doing some great stuff and we really appreciate, really appreciate what you've shared with us. Well, it's an honor. It's an honor to, honor to share. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. This really has been such a rich conversation and I'm sure that our listeners will really appreciate your candor and the beauty with which you've narrated your experience and undoubtedly put words to theirs. So thank you. Thank you so much.